Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Before Politics Was a Game. I think I should start by saying that I'm not naive. It is very possible that what we call politics has always been a game, and there have been many times in American history, just to focus on the United States, where the game has been played as badly in the past as it is being played today. But I would call out that it's been played pretty badly today for most of my lifetime, and it hasn't always been that way. Not always. At least, perhaps, not to this degree. At least in American political mythology, we have this idea that there was a point in time when a group of men, and it was factually men, got together, risked their lives, their fortunes, and aligned themselves past whatever their differences were to commit to creating this country wherever the chips may fall. And what I would say, and the theme of this show, is that we don't have any of those kind of Americans with us today. Or at least I think I can make that argument. Because... This notion of country before self doesn't seem to exist. The only thing that some of these people are willing to put ahead of themselves from the perspective of pure selfishness is their political party. But that just comes down to this notion of politics being played predominantly as a game and as just a game. Now, this has been on my mind lately. Inappropriate Conversations has just had one of the bigger, longer hiatuses in the history of the show. There'll be a lot of inappropriate conversations and Walk the Earth podcasts happening in the month of August. But July was kind of thin, and one of the reasons why July was thin is that my wife and I took an extended vacation, and one of the things we thought for a moment we might be accomplishing by that was avoiding some of the Republican political process, which has certainly kicked into gear here in the year 2015. Our mistake was that we had seen the dates in July For when the Republican National Convention was going to be happening in Cleveland, Ohio, and although I don't live in Cleveland, Ohio, I think anybody who lives anywhere near Northeastern Ohio or Western Pennsylvania is going to feel the consequences of the presence of that particular political convention. And I'm not just picking on the Republicans. The same circus atmosphere, the same nonsense, from my perspective, is true whether or not the political party having its convention is on one side of the spectrum or the other. Republicans and Democrats are equally guilty here. Uh, In fact, they're equally guilty across all of the political gamesmanship I'm going to talk about today. But I'm going to use some examples that I'm familiar with and some of the examples that I may have covered in past inappropriate conversations. And some of those certainly don't make the Republican Party look particularly good. So maybe given the choice between the two, I would rather be further away. It's just that maybe this year for this particular election cycle, there's fewer clowns on the Democrat side. I won't make a political argument about who's got the bigger clowns. I'm just talking about sheer quantity. The number of people who are trying to participate in the political process is going to make that convention pretty crazy. Now, if that event or if these initial debates were happening anywhere near where I live now, I would have been very happy to have been out of town for that. But unfortunately, our travel plans came one year too soon. We may very well be on the outskirts of this circus either way. But the thought occurred to me that maybe I should talk about politics as a game, and what a negative thing that is in, you know, the, in the context of this particular election cycle kicking up. Because I think as most people who watch American politics know, in a year where an eight-year presidential term has ended, where the 
current president cannot be reelected. Those tend to be even a little bit crazier. Obviously, the last time we had this was eight years ago, at the end of the two-term run of George W. Bush, and before what turned out to be the two-term run of Barack Obama, we had a very heated and contentious election cycle. I can recall going to the polls that year and being in line for an hour and a half or more, just because that many more people voted, because it was perceived as an open seat that was up for grabs, and that probably explains why so many Republicans are showing interest. The other reason, though, that there's going to be additional content on the RSS feed for inappropriate conversations and Walk the Earth in the month of August, part of it is, as I've mentioned, I've been gone for a while and now I'm back. But the other part of it is that I'm going to be participating, as planned, frankly, as planned a couple of years ago, in a Pride 48 event in Las Vegas this year. I say that it's been sort of in the planning or in the conversation for a couple of years now, because I can recall back in, I think it was late August or more likely September of 2013, recording Inappropriate Conversations 128, Proud to Know You. And in that Inappropriate Conversation, I, I discussed the fact that probably wouldn't be able to go to the very next year's event in Las Vegas, but instead of uh, the next September, I'm now making it to the year after that in August. And not only will I be there, but even though I'm not technically a Pride 48 podcast, if you went to pride48.com, which is probably not a bad idea to do on the occasional Sunday, During the month of August, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, they'll be doing a State of the Station show talking about the upcoming event at the end of August and the preparations for that event. I'm not listed there. I'm not one of the, uh, I'm not part of the official lineup, you might say, but I'm going to be in town and I am a podcaster and uh, the, the offer was extended to me to participate and I said yes. And I thought about it and said you know, Inappropriate Conversations is probably more in line with the the general theme of Pride 48, but I wasn't comfortable with a one-hour show and with the idea of having extra music cues for drum music in and out, and I like to use promotional clips, and I would want to do all of it live the way I do it, and that might be more of a challenge than I'm willing to take on. The idea of doing a live podcast is something I've never done before, even in a 30-minute slot. But what I did instead was say yes to the 30 minutes, and I'm doing it under the context and uh, as a Walk the Earth podcast. The music cues are a little bit more straightforward. I don't use any promotional clips, and I feel like there's a question that I can spend a half hour answering. That is typically what happens in Walk the Earth anyway. So Walk the Earth 30 will come out in a podcast form most likely in September, because in the very end of August, Walk the Earth 30 is going to be available live on the internet at pride48.com. The time slot that I have for that has been identified. I am going to be on the show on Friday, the very first block, as a matter of fact, August 28th at 5 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It will actually be 2 to 2.30 p.m. in Las Vegas at that point in time. There'll be a couple of shows before me, again, part of this first block, then a break for meal, and then the show will pick up again, the series of podcasts will pick up again at 4.30 Pacific, 7.30 Eastern Time. So Walk the Earth live in August. So in addition to the regular Walk the Earth I do intend to record right before I go, there'll be another one that'll be on the internet that will come out after that. So lots of content coming that will break this little drought that has been going on with both of the podcasts here in the last two or three weeks. It's not that I've been quiet. I've been putting blog posts up, uh, back-to-back blog posts, as a matter of fact. But the uh, the podcast will resume with this one. 
So to, to frame up the concept a little bit, there's a couple of ideas that I want to put out there. And one of them really will be sort of my theme for the show. And the other one I think I'm going to take from Dan Carlin and, and his Common Sense program. So you can expect a Common Sense promo at some point along the way here. Let me start with Dan Carlin and his concept because I think it really speaks to what I'm talking about. If U.S. politics at the moment of the American Revolution was in some way a higher standard than being just a game, being played by petty and in case some cases foolish people, certainly by the time you get to the presidency of Andrew Jackson, somewhere around the 1820s, we do devolve into a, a state that we've more or less been in off and on ever since. So it's not like America had some gold standard all the way until World War II and since then we've slipped into some abyss of nonsense. It's just that we've been you know, in varying degrees of nonsensical gamesmanship all this time. But Carlin calls it out really well on one of his common sense shows. Sorry, I can't remember which one. Comparing one of the government shutdown sort of dramas we've had here in the last three or four years. And I'll get to another one here in a minute. And he basically said that the character and the quality of politicians that we have in Congress today would fight with each other during World War II. Is there no moment in our country, at least at this moment, this, this time of our country, that is so serious and that is so important and that is so crucial that we'll stop grandstanding about how crucial the moment is and start acting like it? You almost feel like addressing these people, all of our elected officials, across all sides of the political spectrum, from every single state, as if they're some sort of misbehaving toddlers or preschoolers, calling the bluff and saying, if what you're talking about is the end of the world as we know it, if America is almost over, Mike Huckabee, why aren't you acting like a statesman? If the times were that crucial, wouldn't you be acting like these are crucial times? And I think I can make an argument that we're not. Right now, the Republican Party is threatening to shut down the government. If over the next course of a week or so, they don't get their way and fully defund what little federal funding there is for Planned Parenthood. It's a politically grandstanding gesture based in response on what I think is a carefully orchestrated smear campaign from a group that has gone in and surreptitiously caught video of support staff in, uh, in related to Planned Parenthood and stitched, cut, and in some ways obfuscated the, the content that was being, again, secretly recorded and put it together to make it sound as if Planned Parenthood is doing things that they clearly aren't doing. I'm not going to get into the, tr the, the trifle of it all, the, uh, because first off, because the charges are themselves not true, there's no uh, illegal organ sales going on here, for example. I'll just leave it at that. I wouldn't want to put them out there and call them wrong, because then you have the same problem that you have in the newspaper business, where the, uh, the retraction gets lost in the mistake. It's always a tricky thing when I worked in newspapers, trying to write the correction retraction blurb. First, it always annoyed me that that would appear on the back page or on page two. It, the apology never appeared in the same spot in the paper that the mistake was made. Let's put it that way. But the other problem was that there's sort of a, an ethical quandary in making sure you don't recommit the same error while calling out that you made an error. So do you write one that sounds so nebulous and so uh, very namby-pamby, for want of a better word, where you're apologizing for something without actually saying what you're apologizing for? Because you're actually trying not to make the same mistake again. You don't want to smear somebody by misattributing something to them twice. Once when you did it, and once when you apologized for it. So I'm not going to go in that particular direction here. I'm going to bypass that particular mistake. 
But what I will say is that over the last, say, six to 12 months, Mike Pence, the governor of Indiana, has clearly set himself aside as being one of the most politically conservative governors out there. The center of the firestorm over their particular pro-discrimination measure that was passed and then quickly retracted when the backlash surprised him and could have overwhelmed the state of Indiana. Well, his political worldview hasn't changed just because he got a bit of a hand slap on the question of the definitions of words like discrimination. When he saw the doctored video that alleged that Planned Parenthood committed all kinds of violations, not just of medical ethics, but also of laws, he launched uh, Indiana on a full-scale investigation, top to bottom, uncovering every leaf, and I think fully expected that he was going to be able to crucify that organization in the public square of his state and probably press extensive criminal charges against numerous people. The results from that extensive research came back this week, finding zero violations whatsoever. The blurb I've got from a story from NewCivilRightsMovement.com says the false and debunked claims that Planned Parenthood is selling aborted fetus parts just got even more debunked. They were already debunked by the fact that the, the video themselves could not be established to be legitimate if you went to the source material. But here, one governor just said, I, I don't care about whether or not we think that these claims are dubious. I'm going to play the political game of doing a very public investigation. I'm going to find the line between witch hunt and extensive state government investigation. Find that line and go there and go there as loudly and proudly as I possibly can because I'm quite sure that when it's done, I'm going to grab the headlines as the winner of this political game I'm playing, pointing the finger at the bad people and making them go away. Will kind of blew up in his face. On the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page, the one listed as a cause, I got a little bit more sarcastic than I think I usually do, responding to a post that was put up by UniteWomen.org. I said to, more or less, to Governor Pence, wait now, we haven't given Indiana's governor a fair opportunity to re-edit and rearrange the final report into something that looks as damning as possible to his political enemies, regardless of what Jesus taught about the truth setting us free. Don't we need to give this guy more time? I asked sarcastically. If we did give him more time to pick and choose the pieces and the parts of the report that seemed to make his claims credible, it would be absolutely consistent with everything else that has happened before on this issue, here in recent weeks. And yet, Republicans, not solely Republicans, I wouldn't imagine, anti-abortion activists in the Senate and the House of Representatives have actually said they are threatening to shut the U.S. federal government down again, if they have to, to deal with this, quote, issue, unquote. That is what I mean when I talk about political games. But political games are not limited, in my opinion, to these big, big issues like abortion or balancing the budget or things of that nature. They cut across the spectrum into even some, even into some smaller issues. But I want to deal with one that I think is very large, written on a large tablet, and one that I think is relatively small, comparatively, that I've talked about before. But I want to look at them in addition to the concept that was put out there by, by Dan Carlin about if these issues are as big and as serious as people say they are, then why wouldn't they, wouldn't, why wouldn't they act like founding fathers, come to the table, have honest, open debate and discussion with each other, make the necessary compromises, and move the country forward? We act sometimes like our U.S. Constitution was handed to us by some sort of otherworldly being. The clouds parted, the heavens opened, and the right hand of God came down with all of the writing on, you know, 
papyrus or hemp, more likely. It didn't happen that way. It was the course of a lot of argument, debate, compromise, wheeling and dealing even, because we were trying to turn the ineffective and ineffectual Articles of Confederation into something that might actually work. That took years to accomplish. And during that span, it wasn't years of trying to embarrass and humiliate your political enemy, by and large. It was more about trying to get to a solution that would work for both big states and small states, for both the cities of the time and the more populous rural areas, for states that were in different climates with different concerns, states with and without ports, all of those sort of issues. You set the games aside and you deal with the issues. So what happens when you end up disagreeing? What happens when at the end of the day, you're one of those people who ends up conceding perhaps more than you get in the compromise process? So what's my philosophy? Because I do have one. My philosophy on this matter is actually relatively simple. It's served me quite well over the course of well, some of, something like 25 years working in retail stores and in the years before that working in newspapers. It's the notion of fully committing to fail fast or succeed as a collaborator. Let me say it again and then I'll explain it. Fully committing to failing fast or succeeding as a collaborator. No one really knows when a compromise is made, whether that compromise is going to work. We are still as a country, 200 plus years later, arguing about the Electoral College, acting as if the Electoral College isn't in the Constitution, which is very strange. But this compromise we made about the Senate having two representatives for every state, regardless of the size of the state, and the House of Representatives being proportionally distributed, and the combination of those two giving each state its number of electors based on how that state chooses to go in the presidential election cycle, you know, that was a compromise. We could have easily come along 30 or 40 years later, ditched the whole thing, and amended the Constitution to start over. We didn't. But what happens when you are in a situation where you make a compromise and you're kind of convinced that things are not going to go your way. My strategy is and always has been. Once I've made my point, once I've gotten on the soapbox, made a passionate claim, tried to persuade people to go in the direction I think we ought to go in, if I don't win that, if an authority figure that's, uh, that has more power than I do, whether that be a, the majority in a voting situation, or an actual chief executive officer of some sort steps in and says, no, we're not doing it that way. We are doing it this way. My attitude is, once you hit that crucial moment, you've got two choices. You can resign, go into your hermit hole, and wait for the day that you can step outside and say, I told you so. Or you can fully commit. There is no in-between. And the reason I'm so frustrated is that politics in America for at least the last 30 years has been a game of playing in between. And it's frankly reprehensible and offensive. So what do I do in a work situation? Again, say I think that we should have made a decision to do a, a particular purchase plan for, for a retail planogram or for a, p a particular piece of software one way. And for whatever reason, a, a, a block of people or a powerful individual said, no, we're going to go in the other direction. When that happens, it becomes crucial for me to make sure that I am doing absolutely everything in my power to make that vision succeed, to make the vision I disagree with, or at least at some point in time I did disagree with, to make that vision succeed. There's two reasons for this, and both of them are kind of purely selfish. One is the fact that I might be wrong. And if I'm wrong, and if this succeeds and is wildly successful, 
I do not want to be seen as the loser when it's all said and done. I'd like to be seen as a key collaborator. Maybe a reluctant collaborator, maybe somebody who had to be gotten on board, but once on board, somebody that can that can raise a toast when that ultimate triumph happens as somebody who is just as much a part of its success as everybody else. The other reason, though, is that if it's going to fail, I want it to fail fast. That is really the key in decision-making. If something's going to go wrong, it needs to go wrong as quickly as it possibly can. The only way that happens, the only way that happens is if everybody who's participating in it is committed to it. Because if the failure happens with someone not on board, with one of the ships having dropped their anchor, dragging the whole caravan down in terms of speed and efficiency, then the failure will not be recognized for what it is. Somebody's going to stop, turn around and say, well, but this guy wasn't on board. It didn't work because we didn't have full commitment from all parties. It didn't work because his decision was slow. The product didn't come in on time. We weren't able to install it on time. We got a surprise because somebody dropped the ball because they weren't really committed to the idea. No, that can't happen. The only way you can fail fast enough to learn from the failure, turn around, amend the approach, and take a different direction is if everybody who is involved, including and perhaps especially those who disagreed, commit to making whatever the new vision is happen as fully, as completely, as effectively, and as flawlessly as possible. So that if I'm right, and the original decision was wrong, the failure will be solely due to the decision itself. And not due to any claims of somebody failing to execute. Any notion that somebody was really just waiting to say, I told you so, and not looking to make it happen. This is how you do politics in a way that isn't just a game, just a bunch of nonsense. Trying to find the first point of failure so that if we get past it, we can you know, rev up, shift into high gear, full steam ahead, and all of us share in the success that we've worked to achieve in some cases, working to achieve that success by hammering away the arguments against it up to the point where the decision is made. Let's put this in the context of the current U.S. Congress and particularly the Republican Party's strategy about the Affordable Care Act. The ACA, Obamacare, has been viewed widely as one of these I told you so moments. You're not going to find very many people who are politically conservative, who've spoken against the ACA, who could not be described as people who have dropped their anchor and are waiting to say, I told you so. But they have done so without, without doing the honorable thing of quitting and going to their hermit hole. Now remember, so there's two options here. There's two ways to go. It is perfectly okay to disagree with a key strategic decision where the stakes are high by saying, I want no part of this. I will not be sitting here when this thing blows up. I told you so. I resign. I'm gone. I'll come back in five or six years when all of my apocalyptic visions have come true. I'll come out of my cave after the eschatological events have happened and say, I told you so. But you can't sit here in the midst of us working to make something happen that has never been tried really before, at least not here in the United States of America, without fully contributing, without fully participating, without driving forward to that moment of first failure as quickly as possible. Because you're dragging us down with, with your anchor, just waiting to say, I told you so, hoping that you're close enough to us that when you say, I told you so, we can hear you. And that is the game being played. That is the game being played when there's been more than 50 votes in Congress to repeal something that has actually only barely just now had a chance to fully flower. We have gone all the way through the court system to the U.S. Supreme Court twice 
meaning that there have been other occasions where we've gone through the court system and didn't get that far because the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, I'm not interested in hearing that. We have spent a tremendous amount of energy past the point of the final vote, past the point of the first U.S. Supreme Court decision, frankly, still doing nothing more than putting an anchor in the way, slowing things down, making what may prove to be the ultimate failure be an impure, a polluted test, an invalid example. Because the question, if it does fail completely, will be, well, did it fail? Or was it never tried? Theologian G.K. Chesterton has a great quote. I'll paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like, the world has concluded that Christianity has been tried and it has failed. But the truth is that Christianity has not been tried at all. It's been evaluated, deemed too hard, and left alone untried. And therefore, I would add, you can't make a claim that it's failed. Same thing here. If Obamacare does blow up in the worst possible way, will we know that it was failed legislation? Or will it just be failed execution? Because at the point in time that somebody should have stopped playing political games and committed to showing the rest of us how wise they are by getting us to that point of critical information and data faster... They tried to make sure that we could get there as slowly as possible, or maybe never, or maybe not at all. It's been more about guerrilla political warfare, rather than the kind of straight-on, straightforward conflict that I, at least in my head, imagine happened in the United States before we actually were the United States. In that period between the Articles of Confederacy and the U.S. Constitution as we know it today. That's my strategy, and that's what I mean by it. But the other thing you've got to avoid in this political gamesmanship is... Well, dishonesty. I guess I could go back to the Planned Parenthood kerfuffle. If you've got to carefully re-edit your video to make the people say the things you want them to say, it certainly raises the question of whether they said what you said they said. But the biggest one I can think of where this is a problem is the issue of prayer in school. So I know that for a lot of people, prayer in school is kind of a non-issue because if you weren't a Christian or if you were a person of other faith, the lack of an indoctrinational Pledge of Allegiance to God with a Bible reading at the beginning of every school day is a good thing. And why are we bothering to spend time defending it? It's inherently good. If I wasn't Muslim, for example, I would be very glad that I was sending my kids to a school system that didn't begin the day with prayers to Allah facing east and a reading from the Quran. It's just not competition of intellectual property that I need to be engaging in. It's one less thing I need from my public school system. I might have enough trouble finding my way through the way a particular form of division is being taught in math class. I don't need to be having an ideological problem about religious belief on a daily basis because this particular teacher or this particular principal or this entire school board has a different notion of who Jesus is than I do. So I know I'm not talking to that part of my audience, the part of my audience that that isn't, well, isn't Christian. But even within Christianity, we need to understand that there's a broad range of ideas that there isn't just one thing that it means to be Christian. A couple of episodes back, speaking of truth to power, I talked a little bit about Galileo being under arrest for the last several years of his life, uh, in part because he had the audacity to say that the scientific evidence he was gathering using what we now call the scientific method was pretty clearly pointed to the idea that the Earth was not the center of the universe, that the Earth, in fact, revolved around the sun, And there was a pretty good chance that the Earth and the Sun weren't weren't all there was to the universe either. And that got him put under house arrest and actually having spent some time behind bars for it. It's funny to hear the Catholic Church today, or apologists for the Catholic Church, talk about how they knew it all along. 
or the Pope being relatively infallible in certain matters, certainly infallible in interpreting the Bible, in the opinion of the Roman Catholic Church, makes it very embarrassing to them that Galileo actually had a proper interpretation of Scripture just using science, and the Pope clearly had an improper interpretation of Scripture. But how else do they explain putting Galileo in prison for all those years, or under house arrest for all those years, if there wasn't a fundamental difference of opinion? It, it always cracks me up when people try to defend something that suddenly becomes even less defensible the way they do it. I go back to the McKinney, Texas pool party story from in the month of June, where the allegation from some on the right wing of the political spectrum is that there was rampant illegal drug abuse happening, and that's why the police were called in in such large numbers, and why there was such an expectation they were going to make a huge number of arrests. My answer is, well, was there drug abuse or not? Because if the drug abuse was as described and the police did not arrest anybody, which they did not arrest anybody for drug abuse, then it's perhaps the most staggering example of law enforcement incompetence in the history of the state of Texas. And good Lord, that's saying something. So it's almost even worse if the grandiose claim you're making to defend a political position where the facts don't line up with it. I mean, again, if the Pope's locking up Galileo for no reason whatsoever, doesn't that make him a much bigger monster than somebody who just lacks intellectual honesty and integrity? And how infallible can you be? Well, here we are with this prayer in school thing, which, again, for me is not a new topic. I've been talking a little bit about questions of school prayer and how it lines up uh, both scripturally and politically and from the history of our country for quite some time. I believe it was uh, Inappropriate Conversations numbers 29 and 30. Introducing this topic of school prayer or prayer before graduation ceremonies or football games and, and actually asking a, a, a relatively obvious question. What did Jesus say, and what would Jesus have us do? And are we really facing all the, the apocalyptic peril that the Mike Huckabees of the world, for example, might say we are facing based on a Supreme Court decision in the mid-1960s? Well, let's take a quick look at it, because I find it frustrating. I think what you're going to find if you go back to those first-year episodes of Inappropriate Conversations that my position hasn't changed or grown here, so I'm not going to shift gears and take a totally different course. But I want to speak to it from this perspective of this politics being played as a game, or in this case, the religious talking points, which is almost now indistinguishable from politics. In the in this person of certain commentators on Fox News, there's no real way to tell one from the other anymore, I would say. But let me go straight to the memes, and we can deal with it from that perspective. You don't have to type in something in a search like, God not allowed in school, and go to the image page before you'll just see a ton of these. Um, one of them, uh, Dear Jesus, why do you allow so much violence in our school? Signed a concerned citizen. And the meme says, Dear concerned student, I'm not allowed in schools. Love Jesus. That's pretty much par for the course. And there are memes that have answers to it. Uh, one of the more famous is the Willy Wonka with his um, elbow on the table and his uh, head resting on his hand, saying, oh, keeping God in schools would have prevented the recent shooting. Please tell me how many cases of child molestation he's prevented in our churches. That kind of response. Uh, that's not the route I want to go. I want to go a different route. Mine is more of a cartoon that I've seen on faculty.nwacc.edu. Uh, it's a student talking to a teacher, and the student's saying, could you repeat the last question? I was lost in prayer. That really gets to the heart of the matter. Because you see, God is not disallowed from school. Maybe the best way I can word this is to actually share the point of view of someone else. A blog called Dangerous Talk, the author called Stax Roche, 
God's Not Allowed in Our School is the headline of this. It was a February 12, 2014 blog post. I'll just start from the beginning. I was dropping my son off at preschool this morning, and one of the other parents had a car with a bumper sticker that said something along the lines of, Dear God, why do you allow so much violence in schools? With the answer, I'm not allowed in schools, signed God. This bothers me for many reasons. First of which is the fact that my son goes to a small preschool and shares a class with a kid whose parent thinks this is such an awesome bumper sticker that she had to put it on her car. Unfortunately, we live in a world filled with people who think schools deserve violence because people are tolerant of others. What a horrible message. Second, it is factually not true. God is allowed in schools. His absence from schools isn't isn't that the administrators won't let him in. It's because he doesn't actually exist. Well, I don't buy that argument either. In all seriousness, back to the blog post. The bumper sticker is trying to make the argument that the landmark 1963 Supreme Court case... Abington School District versus Shemp, which held that public school-sponsored Bible readings were unconstitutional under the First Amendment. The key word here is sponsored. Public school-sponsored Bible readings. Any child can pray to any deity they choose freely in a non-disruptive fashion. No one is forbidding prayer in school. Only school-sponsored prayer is forbidden. In other words, you can pray silently to Zeus, Allah, Jesus, and Thor before a test if you think it will help you but a teacher or faculty member can't force or lead the entire class to pray their, to their particular deity or any deity. Now, the Christian negativity here comes from the fact that this is actually on skepticinc.com slash dangerous talk. So we're looking at a, a skeptic's perspective. But here's the problem I've got with the gamesmanship. We've got a group of Christians who are saying that something absolutely satanic and critically eschatological is happening. The world is going to come to an end because in 1963, and in some cases after that, the U.S. Supreme Court said we can't have this kind of indoctrination happening in our schools. The logic is, and the game being played here, is that if prayer isn't in school, at least in this version, in school being led by principals and teachers and secretaries and people like that, authority figures, if prayer isn't being forced in school into the you know, ears and minds of kids, whether their family shares that faith or believes the same way or not, then it, Satan is winning. And America as we know it is going to be over. And God's going to you know, strike us all down with lightning. Well, let me say I buy the premise. Let me just go on and say that if in everyday public life, somebody who is a believer in God was stopped from in any way representing their faith. They couldn't pray to themselves. They couldn't pray with a like-minded set of people in a a table in the corner of the restaurant. They could not um, write a letter to the editor. That we were essentially, you know, boiled down to perhaps the worst, most dangerous vision of uh, political communism. Uh, Red China, for example, or uh, the vision of the USSR that was, especially during the Stalin years, if that were going on, that it would actually be a very big deal, and the threat would actually be grave and great. But the fact of the matter is that the way the laws stand right now, no teacher is even allowed to prohibit a kid from praying in school. Now, if that kid stands up with some sort of a calculated version of Tourette's syndrome, and at the top of his lungs recites his prayer to his God so loudly that no one else can even either read or sharpen their pencils without having to deal with it. I mean, if you're being disruptive, if you're being a bully, then yes, the school needs to step in and stop that. 
But in the rare cases, or I would say the very, very, very rare cases, where a teacher or a public school administrator screws up and stops a kid from praying in his own or her own unobtrusive way, that tends to go very badly for that administrator because U.S. federal executive orders, the law of the land, Supreme Court rulings, everything else lines up against them. Kids are allowed to pray in school. So here's the thing. Every time a Christian plays the political game of saying God's not allowed in schools, who's keeping God out of schools? Let's say every impressionable young kid, elementary, middle, middle school, maybe even the first part of high school, who hears the right wing, the religious right, say these things, hears it, it goes into their mind, and they somehow now believe it. It's patently false. You're, they're allowed to pray. They're allowed to gather together before school hours in a, in a corner of the cafeteria or in a classroom and, and have their own little Bible. So they're allowed to do all that stuff. It just can't be led by the state. The same jackbooted thugs that the right wing of America freaks out about when you're talking about the IRS or when you're talking about health care. They kind of want those jackbooted thugs going in and using all weapons of coercion available to them to force kids to pray my prayer my way. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court said no to that. Said no, no, no. This is an individual act of an individual faith. So my question is, is an individual act of the individual faith of a large majority of students bringing God into school some sort of problem? Well, politically for the, for the religious right, it's a problem. If prayer in school not being a form of indoctrination didn't prove to be a big deal because every Christian kid prayed in school, and the level of genuine, heartfelt prayer actually went up, even from where it was in the 50s and early 60s. Because you had people who were praying not because the teacher said so, but because they were genuinely led to through their spiritual relationship with the Lord. I would say if the Holy Spirit is calling upon you to pray and you respond, and you lift up a prayer to God the Father through Jesus our Savior, because you want to, because you decided to, and not because the principal said we were all going to do it this way, that God is not just in schools. He is more in schools than at any point, perhaps at any point in U.S. history. He's in schools. Who's trying to shut that down? Instead of these so-called religious spokespersons getting politically active Christians together and saying, hey, how do we deal with this change that's happened in our culture? A change that happened 52 years ago. Maybe what we should do is make sure that as parents... We have children who have been raised to understand what prayer is, who feel comfortable praying, who feel comfortable praying privately in any public place, who aren't confused by the potential oxymoron of that combination of the words private and public. If every single kid who wanted to pray prayed, God would be more in schools than ever before, meaning that the people playing political games, trying to stop people from praying, are the religious right. When you tell a kid he's not allowed to do something, when he is so clearly allowed to do it, and he doesn't because he thinks you're right, who stopped him from praying? The principal, the school board, the courts? No, you have. Some of the most satanic actions, to use their terminology, happening on this issue of school prayer are coming from the religious right. The people who spend the most time telling the most students not to pray in school are the religious right. Because they don't want it to work. They don't want kids to pray in school anyway and remove the indoctrination because what they're looking for is not genuine heartfelt prayer between believer and savior. They're looking for indoctrination. That's the game they're playing. And shame on so many of us, especially Christians, 
who aren't seeing right through it. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin. Common sense. We've had a couple of parts of our country who've been given the leeway, uh, in some cases through independent private funding, to do the kind of research that I think Dan Carlin would probably applaud. I think Dan Carlin would be very pleased by the fact that some of these experiments are happening, whether they're happening in a small way through a smaller form of government, like a city or a county, uh, or through private donation funding it. But in states like Minnesota and Colorado, and there may be others, we have had a fairly successful experiment run without outside interference from governments, courts, or law enforcement, seeing what might happen if you actually did sex education and contraception availability much, much better. What would happen if instead of just say no, you actually had comprehensive sex education? I mean comprehensive. So not just sexually transmitted diseases, bad, but how do you get them and how do you prevent them? Not just the forms of contraception and what their potential failure rate is, but also what is their effectiveness rate. And if they do fail, then you get into that entire range of what does it mean to take care of a baby, so forth and so on. But if people actually knew a better kind of, again, full range of human sexuality and had a full range of medical care available, both in testing and treatment, but also the availability of contraception, and if those contraceptives were, first off, a wide variety of free market choice available to the end user with a variety of effectiveness and, and options there. If you let parents and children make these choices, what would happen? And what we've seen in these states is a staggering drop in teen pregnancy rates, a correspondingly predictable drop in the rates of abortion in those age groups. We've seen a fantastically successful test that in the case of Colorado only cost a couple million dollars to administer. Colorado is still, I think, arguing about whether or not to continue the undeniably and phenomenally successful test. Because, like Texas before them, they don't necessarily see the wisdom of how much money you save. Just in the staggering, we're told, invaluable cost of human life by reducing abortion, but also the, the costs associated with uh, all the different programs necessary to deal with somebody who's a single parent or a teenage parent or the, a parent of an unwanted pregnancy carrying it to term, all those sorts of things. The, the $1 million or $2 million cost seems like an incredible bargain over the lifespan of what you're saving, the, of the program itself, end to end. I'm not sure that there's any other reason other than a false sense of morality and a bad form of political gamesmanship that would be leading people to want to not carry forth with the program because the data speaks volumes. It's incredibly successful. And what Dan Carlin's maintained in his show is all you need is a few examples of these tests to get other people involved, to get to the point where maybe now entire states are trying it. And now that a few entire states are trying it, then you get to the point where it seems kind of obvious to the federal government that it's low risk and likely to succeed. And that's where we stand. 
People like me, maybe even Rachel Held Evans and some other folks, have said all along that what it means to be a political moderate on issues like contraception and abortion is that you simultaneously recognize that what's going on in abortion is a human life. It's either going to be a preborn child that is born as a child, or it's going to be a preborn child that doesn't get born at all. But whatever it is, it's human the whole time. My question is, what do you do about it? And I've yet to see any strategy coming from the so-called pro-life movement. And I say so-called because their track record on taking care of an end-to-end perspective on life is actually pretty poor. That all their solutions seem to be designed to create more of the problem. Again, political gamesmanship is this idea of wanting to call a bad thing bad, even if calling it bad doesn't help things, even if it doesn't make it go away, even if it doesn't solve anything. For me, these issues where sexuality is involved get very difficult and confusing because of America's perception of its puritanical past. I say perception because in Inappropriate Conversation 69, I talked a little bit about colonial America and the rates of, of unwanted pregnancy, the, the rates of illegitimacy, uh, the, the clear answer that colonial America, including the Puritans, had a fairly high amount of premarital sexual activity going on in them. And yet we don't think so. We've got this idea that especially the Puritans, everything was some sort of ideal of chastity, but it really just isn't true. But if we sort of kind of acknowledge the fact that Maybe if you just give, grant me that in 21st century America, some of those abstinence-only programs are built on notions which just don't make sense, that can't be proven out using the scientific method based on the sociological evidence we have before us. The rest of this is just games, and it's just nonsense. And when you're playing political games under the moniker of pro-life movement, what you're doing is creating additional unwanted pregnancy. We're interfering with those of us who were willing to commit to the compromise from day one and putting more lives at stake. Let me go back to my original principle and see how it might apply to this just briefly here at the end of the, the inappropriate conversation before I get to a different drummer who I think this week models what I'm talking about pretty squarely. I think the next different drummer I do might be completely unrelated to the topic. <laughs> Doesn't happen often, but it does happen. But this week's different drummer I think is right on target when it comes to having a no-nonsense kind of an approach. But no, my theory is that if you disagree on a strategy, if you've got a your way and you perceive that everyone else has either one other way that's wrong or a combination of bad ideas, that each one of them is wrong. When, when the moment of compromise occurs, you need to fully commit to the strategy if only to help enable the rest of us to see how foolish we've been. Failing fast so we can see the light, so we can begin to retrace our steps before we're too far down that other path. Well, we've got something like 42 years of being down a Roe versus Wade path here. And at no point in those 42 years do I feel like we can actually make a claim about what would happen if comprehensive and effective sex education was coupled with completely available birth control. What would happen to the abortion rate? We don't know the answer to that question. Because the pro-life movement is more interested in babies dying the wrong way. Because the highest priority is saving babies their own way. It gets back to this prayer in school idea. If every single kid shows up and if every single one of those kids prays to their God their way, for a lot of American people, a lot of Christians in the religious right, that's still going to be a horrible thing because some of them are praying wrong. 
Some of them are Jehovah's Witnesses. Some of them are Seventh-day Adventists. Some of them are Roman Catholic, or none of them are Roman Catholic. They're all getting it wrong somehow because my prayer is the only prayer that matters. This my way or the highway idea is the worst form of political gamesmanship. And I think if you look right now at all three branches of the U.S. government, what you're going to see is a government that is mired in a my way or the highway mentality and has been for so long that maybe we've forgotten how it is to be our founding fathers. Do you experience bouts of geekdom? If so, Anomaly may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's convention reports, cosplay topics, and commentary on Star Wars, Doctor Who, Star Trek, and other sci-fi fantasy genres provided a feeling of fullness while promoting optimal geekiness. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher and in the iTunes, Zune, and Blackberry stores. Learn more at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Anomaly. Your prescription for geek entertainment. So I mentioned that the different drummer is perhaps a very good example of this kind of compromise this kind of leadership that recognizes deferring to a higher authority and at times perhaps recognizing deferring to a higher authority when that authority is wrong. It's Dwight D. Eisenhower. Now, do I introduce Eisenhower as a different drummer, as a general, leading the way during World War II, uh, being principally involved in the, uh, the D-Day invasion and repelling Germany from France and winning World War II, at least on the European front? Or do I mention him as a president? Or is it really some combination of the two? It's, it's kind of hard to say. But I think every now and then people ask the question of, like, who's your favorite president? Greg, in your lifetime, who is your favorite president? And I would have to honestly say, I don't have one. There is not a single president during my lifetime that I can feign genuine enthusiasm about. And maybe, if I had lived in the 1950s, there's enough pros and cons with Eisenhower as well. It's just the nature of the job. President of the United States of America is a position that's naturally going to put you in a spot where there's going to be some good and there's going to be some bad. And depending on what issues you're the most passionate about, it's going to net out in, in sort of a strange way. But I think that Eisenhower, when you put the pros on one side, the cons on the other, does better than any president since. And I really struggle to find very many presidents before that I would put into that category. we got to remember that even with Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln did have writings where he proposed what he thought was the solution to the slavery problem. It wasn't emancipation. That was a wartime maneuver, born out of necessity. His notion was to gather a bunch of boats together and send them all back to Africa. So I don't know that I would say that Abraham Lincoln also fails to generate any cons on the con side of his ledger. It's going to be that way when you put the pro and cons together. But just to kind of cite a few things for Eisenhower that I think kind of ring the bell. On the negative side, uh, he was involved in the original planning of the, of the Iranian coup d'etat that deposed the prime minister at the time, put us in the game that we played with the Shah of Iran, ultimately leading to the negative consequences in the late 1970s when the Shah was opposed by the Ayatollahs. So, again, not a perfect track record. Being a military person, uh, he was comfortable using military threats to bring it into the Korean War. He wasn't afraid to say yes to a, you know, supporting a coup d'etat in Guatemala that overthrew a democratic government 
and put in a government that might be more militarily led, but more friendly to our policies. So not perfect, right? Having said that, though, uh, there were some very positive things that came out of, of his time. In addition to the conclusion of World War II, his initial leadership of NATO, just as president, just to look at that kind of narrow band, he forced Israel, along with some other folks, France and the UK, to end the invasion of Europe during the Suez Crisis in 1956. Might have been one of the last presidents to take that kind of a stand against Israel, to force Israel to behave in a way that was more consistent with what the international community was expecting of them. He was instrumental in uh, the original funding of NASA. So what would we, we give Kennedy a lot of credit for the space race and how the space race played out, but that starting point, uh, authorizing the establishment of NASA, that credit goes to Eisenhower. Putting in the interstate highway system, largely a credit to Eisenhower. Again, Eisenhower thinking from a military perspective, uh, understanding the value of having a, a grid and a network through which you could transport troops and supplies. But it also proved those kind of two decisions together, one being NASA and both the initial and ongoing research and all of the scientific developments that came out of that, um, even things as simple as Velcro, but lots of invention, innovation, and development coming through there that has made a difference in the lives of all of us. He was also involved in a decision to initially set up the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, from which the Internet eventually came. So trying to work on the most effective possible ways of communicating. Again, military guy as the U.S. president, thinking about national defense, but initially starting down the path which would give us NASA and all of the invention and innovation and all of the things we know about the universe now through the interstate system, uh, revolutionizing U.S. commerce, again, maybe as a secondary benefit, and setting in motion things that would eventually become the Internet as we know it today. These are huge developments. If you go over on the domestic side, this is all kind of you know, picking and choosing from Wikipedia. But if you go over there, he, he sent federal troops to Little Rock, Arkansas for the first time since Reconstruction to enforce federal court orders to desegregate public schools. The opposition to, segregation, to desegregation was so high. And I would say that in America today, the commitment to segregation is still stealthily, in a gamesmanship kind of way, present like it never was before. But Eisenhower confronted it directly, basically said, no, black children are going to go to public schools, and if I have to escort them in day after day, month after month, with U.S. troops keeping the peace, I'll do it. And Eisenhower did that. So I guess the way I would wrap this up, again, talking about gamesmanship, is two things. First, Eisenhower ended his second term in office with a warning about public and private money merged together, government contracts, military manufacturers, the growth of the defense industry, coining the term the military-industrial congressional complex. It wasn't even five years later that a group of elected officials in Congress, including, I believe, and I'm shooting from memory, I haven't done the primary research, the grandfather of George W. Bush, trying to classify all of the, the giving to political campaigns, the guarantees of cookie, cushy jobs when you're out of office, all the sort of things which look a little bit from the outside to the, to the naked American eye like they might be a form of kickbacks or graft or, or corruption or bribery. It was that senator, among others, who said, we need to keep this private from the American people because there are, there's a ruling class and then there's the, 
the rest of the country. And the rest of the country doesn't need to know the sacrifices we're making as a ruling class by accepting millions of dollars in campaign contributions and having guaranteed jobs for ourselves and our family members to make sure that these private defense contract companies get a lot of guaranteed money from the American taxpayer through Congress to maintain a constant battle readiness that is not hiccuped one bit that we've probably spent more now than we did then with the you know, Red Scare over. See, when you line up uh, sort of the Joseph McCarthy worldview with the Eisenhower worldview, you're going to find Reagan very close to McCarthy, but you're going to find Eisenhower on the other side. Wikipedia says this, Eisenhower covertly opposed Joseph McCarthy and contributed to the end of McCarthyism by openly invoking the modern expanded version of executive privilege. I think we sometimes forget, if you watch too much of too many television news stations, that executive privilege and executive orders weren't invented by Barack Obama in the last six, seven years. They go way back to before Eisenhower. But he expanded that concept to the place that it probably is today, to our modern understanding. He otherwise left most of the political activity to his vice president, Richard Nixon. But he did step in on occasion, and among the occasions he did step in on was opposing McCarthy. So if we sum all this up into one idea, I think where the gamesmanship concept ties out is here. If you listen to the American politically conservative small business pundit, I'm not 100% sure we're actually talking about real life small businessmen. We may just be talking about those who presume to speak on their behalf, the Joe the Plumbers of the world, if you will. You get this notion that, well, when Elizabeth Warren said, hey, you didn't build this thing on your own. This successful business you're operating, this huge successful juggernaut you're going to hand down for generation, you hope generation after generation to your kids, you didn't do it alone. You didn't build the interstate highway system. You didn't establish a postal network or what has grown into their competition. You didn't build or create the internet. You aren't drafting off the benefits of every single patent you're leveraging coming from your own personal invention. You didn't do it alone. A lot of the stuff we did together. We as the United States of America, no matter how afraid we may be in a McCarthyist style of socialism, we have to admit that together, as a society, as one collective, if you were, we built those highways, we built those bridges. We sent those rockets out into outer space. We established what low Earth orbit meant. We went to the moon. Those are things we all did together. And they've yielded a ton of benefits, not just to the private sector, but to the way all of us do business. How long does it take for a ship that brings goods from China to land on the coast of California or Canada? How long does it take that product to get to my warehouse or to my stores? It's because of things that Dwight Eisenhower allowed us to do together. If it seems like a lot of the examples I'm using are critical of Republicans, I think we need to remember that there's no more one definition of Republican than there is one definition of Christian, which I mentioned earlier, talking about prayer in schools. Talking about Eisenhower in particular, we should just take a look at some of the some of the planks in the 1956 Republican platform. Again, one of the things that comes out of what I would consider the modern-day gamesmanship of political conventions. Just a few, and this, of course, came from a from probably a left-leaning publication, providing federal assistance to low-income communities, protecting Social Security, providing asylum for refugees, extending the minimum wage, improving unemployment benefit systems so it covers more people. Strengthening labor laws so workers can easily join a union. Assuring equal pay for equal work regardless of gender. 
this is the kind of thing that the Republican Party was putting into their official platform, running for re-election for Ike in 1956. If you said, I like Ike, then you were saying some things right now that I don't think you're going to find a single person in the more than a dozen current Republican candidates for the, you know, for the next president who would even agree with a little bit, much less a lot. My question isn't uh, Republican versus Democrat. It's which version of Republican versus which version of Democrat. And unfortunately, the distinction is just about games. One more reminder, last Friday in August at Pride48.com, you can hear a live broadcast of Walk the Earth starting at 5 o'clock Eastern Time. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation today, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The show notes that are posted at InappropriateConversations.org have comments enabled. You can also interact with me through Twitter at IC underscore Greg or through Facebook. I have pages for both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. You can listen to Inappropriate Conversations as a podcast on Stitcher using Stitcher Smart Radio. And I am still in the process of sharing clips from the oldest episodes of Inappropriate Conversations, eventually getting to walk the earth, I suppose, on SoundCloud. At SoundCloud.com, I'm also IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening.